This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org. All right, let's um, begin a study tonight that um, um, I think um, I think you'll find um, number one very interesting. Uh, number two extremely helpful and it's going to be a we're going to do a verse by verse study through the book of esther that's in the old testament but tonight we got to begin well we get to esther i promise you but we got to go to the book of romans first so i want you to turn to romans chapter eight and while you're turning there let me let me kind of give you the background of why esther is such a unique book all right. In your Bibles, there are 66 books. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Every book of the Bible, except for one, mentions the name of God. And that one book is Esther. It is the only book of the Bible. It doesn't mention Jesus, God, Lord, Jehovah, there is absolutely no version of the word God from start to finish. And one would think, well, why in the world would a book like that be in the Bible? Well, for me, that makes the Bible all the more relevant and true because there's material that doesn't logically support the message of God, but yet God is all over the book in terms of the events and the circumstances and, 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 and all the things that are transpiring because they happen in accordance with his will. He is allowing things to happen. In other words, it is a book that perfectly displays the sovereignty of God even without mentioning who he is. That fact alone is a reason why it is a great book for all of us to study because I've, you know, I've been a Christian for decades now. I've been following the Lord. I was saved. Uh, I came to a knowledge of the gospel and um, uh, asked the Lord to forgive me and my sins when I was five years old. And I didn't get all of it. I didn't understand all this. But I knew that Jesus had died on the cross for my sins. And, and I needed what he offered. And that began my journey. But there are times that I have had in my life where I just didn't think God was ever around. I'll take it a step further. There are times in ministry where you can feel extra lonely and you kind of wonder where God may be. But I can assure you, He is there and He is at work. Thing is, we have to learn how to see how He is at work. And so the title of the study through this book is going to be called Learning to trust God's unseen hand. That even though he's not there, like you don't hear him, you certainly don't see him, like I'm seeing you. He's not speaking audibly, like you can hear me. He is still at work. So how can we learn to trust what he's doing when we can't see, hear, touch, taste, smell him or whatever? For us to 
get into a right frame of mind, let's go to Romans 8. Because there's a verse in Romans 8 that is going to, um, it's, it's kind of like the chamber that you need to walk into the book with. Okay? Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a well-known verse. Some of you already know it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, other v- versions say the same thing. You know, that all things work together for good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. Okay. Um, this well-known Roman passage serves as a good starting point because it's going to remind us of the people in Esther who were spared. Now, there's a group of people that we're going to be learning about who were endangered. Of the, they were in danger of being ex, of exterminated from the face of the earth. They were in danger of being killed, slaughtered, wholesale, they exist no longer. They were the Jews. But at this point in redemptive history, at the time that Esther was written, the people in this book, the Jews, two things were going on. Number one, they had a rekindled love of the Lord. And it was evident in what was happening culturally at this time. In other words, world history affirms this stuff. Okay? They had a newfound love for the Lord. Why? Because their Babylonian captivity had ended. They had already had one wave of Jews to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. Actually, if I'm thinking geographically, they moved from Babylon back to Jerusalem. To do what? To rebuild the wall around the city. To rebuild the temple. They had a newfound love of the Lord. Number two, they were called to play a central part of the purpose of God. Because without the Jewish nation, you would have never had Jesus, who was a Jewish carpenter. And who was born to be the savior of not only the Jews, but the Gentiles, us, who are non-Jews. So when you look at this text, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This text fits those people. They had a newfound love for the Lord, and they most certainly fit into God's uh, uh, plan and, 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 and his purpose for, for sending the Lord Jesus Christ. But this verse is mentioned in the New Testament. It's mentioned to a church. It was like us. And we need to be equally reminded that when we start learning to trust God's unseen hand, we have to first have a love for the Lord. Or you're not going to see anything or know how things are working. And you got to realize that, that you can be another word for purpose. You can kind of use is the word will. You can be. You can be in God's will, doing what he has called you to do, living as he's called you to live, or you cannot. Now, if we take that verse at face value, and we will because there's, there's no reason not to, this verse is exclusive, not inclusive. It means that there's only a certain kind of people who will ever know that all things are going to work out for good. And that are those who love the Lord, and they are called according to his purpose. 
They love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they're following him as, as their Lord and Savior, and, and they are actively pursuing that relationship and, and, and earnestly uh, living to the best of their ability uh, through the you know, power of the Holy Spirit. They are living uh, a life to, to follow Jesus. But there's one other thing. The Word says that it works together for good. And immediately a question ought to be asked. Who's good? Our good? God's good. God's good. All things will work together for God's good. In other words, God will always get the glory for how he uses us and how we are a part of of his kingdom work. It means that sometimes things don't always work out our way. I wish I could tell you that following the Lord, everything has has worked out for my personal good. It has not. But I can tell you for whose good it has worked out for. It's worked out for God's good. I don't always see that, but it does. And I want it to. Because I can promise you that God's good is always our good, but our good is not always God's good. Sometimes things don't... Sometimes prayers don't need to be answered. Because we don't see the things that God sees. So that's the frame of mind that we need to have when we approach the book of Esther. All right? So with that in mind, let's go back to the Old Testament. And if you can, if you turn like, okay, the best way to find Esther, if you're not familiar with it, kind of turn right almost into the middle of your Bible, and usually you'll wind up in Psalms. That's usually where it's at. Uh, Psalms. And then from Psalms, hang a left. Go one book before Psalms, and you'll find Esther. Okay. <clears throat> well, two books, um, if you're going to get technical. But it's before Psalms. I always go to Psalms and then hang a left. So. Okay. All right. Here's the book of Esther. All right. Um, I, I, let me read to you verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to explain some things, and then we're going to learn some principles. Uh, let me kind of start out here. I'm going to give you one rule each night. And then I'm going to give you, you know, two, three, or four supporting conclusions, okay? So that's the way that our lesson is going to... I'll give you one, you know, overarching principle and then some supporting rules for that, okay? So Esther 1 verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus. Now you may have a version of the Bible that says Xerxes. How many of you have a Bible that says Xerxes? It's the same person. I'll talk about that in a minute. So now in the days of Ahasuerus... Uh, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. 
There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. That's like HGTV on steroids is what that is. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. And I'm going to tell you, that is an important phrase in this opening text. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. That's another clue. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Hasherius. So remember, anytime you see Hasherius, it's Xerxes. Xerxes, Hasherius. Same person. Why? Xerxes is a Greek name. Hasherius is Hebrew. And in the uh, manuscripts, in the ancient manuscripts, it's seen in, in both. And so some translators just use the Greek word. Others said, now we'll just keep the Hebrew. It's the exact same person. So don't let that confuse you. Now, because this happened in a time in which the city of Babylon was kind of like, you know, New York. I mean, it was like the big city. You would think that, well, why isn't it happening in Babylon? Well, it's, it's not. It's actually happening in the capital of Susa. Well, where's Susa? I've never heard of Susa. Another word for Susa, you may have it in your Bibles as the word Shushan, S-H-U-S-H-A-N. Same place, okay? Same rules are applying. Whenever you see these words that kind of sound the same, but they're different spelling, one's usually from the Greek, the other's going to be from Hebrew, but it's the same place, all right? Now, the remnants of this city exist today. They have been, um, um, uh, there's been archaeological digs. And uh, if you can imagine a world map, okay, and you've got uh, Saudi Arabia right down here. And you come up the Middle East to Jerusalem, right? You've got the Middle East area. You've got Iraq. And then you've got Iran, the city of uh, the, the city that was Shushan or Susa is actually now called Shush, and it's located in Iran, kind of in the south central western part. It's 250 miles away from Baghdad. Okay, if you go to Google Earth, you can type in Shush, Iran. You'll zoom right in on it, and you'll actually see a big square in the middle of a city, like a humongous geographical square where nothing's built. Those are the remnants of the ancient city. Okay. So that's where all this stuff is, is taking place. Now, something else that's happening is, uh, you have Babylonian captivity, which had now ended. Okay. Remember the Jews were carted off. Remember Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, right? That guy, he was part of the Jews that were, that were taken from Jerusalem, exported to Babylon Okay, and they were held there. They, they had to serve Babylon. Well, that time was over, and a first wave of Jews were allowed to leave and go back to their homeland. Then after a while, a second wave of Jews came over back to their homeland. The events in Esther occur between the first return and the second return. 
So not all the Jews have made their way back, you know, to the West. They're still hanging out um, in the Babylonian, you know, uh, uh, Susa. They're still hanging out there, okay? So uh, if you look at the books of the Bible, you've got uh, the events of Daniel, then Esther, Nehemiah, um, um, and, and, and uh, Ezra, and Malachi. So Daniel, es- in a timeline, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi. So we're getting almost to the end of the Old Testament timeline. Okay, We're, we're not far removed from that. Secular history tells us that Xerxes, Hasherius, was planning to invade Greece. The book of Esther opens up during part of the time in which he was planning that battle. Now, it doesn't state it explicitly in the book, but we know historians tell us it took him four years to construct the battle plans to get ready to invade Greece. This opening scene in Esther chapter 1, this banquet, it does correspond to a great feast that he was giving during that exact same time. And he launched this invasion to Greece in 481 B.C. Um, Like I said, Book of Esther doesn't say much about it, anything about it. But uh, historians know that it happened. And uh, some said that, well, he wanted to do it to avenge his dad because his father had tried to invade Greece uh, at Athens and, and, it was, and it was horrendous. He was just horribly defeated. And, um, and so, yeah. So he made the, the, the fight, he, you know, he went off to war, Xerxes did. He got defeated too. So actually when we see Queen Esther... Queen Esther comes into the period of time in which he's got his tail tucked between his legs and he's come back home. Now, none of, like I said, none of that is in the book itself, but it's, it's part of the life of Xerxes that we know happened. Now, that's kind of like all the background that I want you to know. There's a lot of other stuff going on in the world at this time. Like for the Parthenon, have you ever seen pictures of the Parthenon? It was built during this time. Okay, so a lot of other things were happening in the world um, that, you know, we don't explicitly read about in the in the in the scriptures, um, but it doesn't change its meaning or, or damage the content in any way. So let's look at what's happening here in, in verses one through nine. The opening verses that talks about 127 provinces, all the armies were here. All that lets us know that that one thing Xerxes was good at. Uh, this king was good at having a well-structured and, uh, and, and well-administered government. Um, I mean, you talk about, you know, everybody knows their role. Everybody's assigned to this. Everybody's, they knew how all that worked. And, and he was just really good at that. The event that we're reading about that in, in verse 2, or rather in verse 3, in the third year, he gave this feast for all of his officials. The army of Persia and Media were there. Um, in verse 4, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180. Think of it like a world's fair, okay? You know, like the, the world exposition. I mean, this, this was it. Everybody's going to come over these, you know, period of, of, of months to, to see the king's splendor. 
I'll let you know how much money this guy had and, and just how ornate everything was. They did that for 180 days. After these days were completed, the king said, okay, everybody who's here in Susa, we're going to do another feast. And this time it's going to take seven days right here in the court of the king's palace. So you had a big 180-day World's Fair and then to cap it off, a feast personally attended to by the king inviting everybody. The text says both great and small. In other words, you and I would have been invited because we're small. We're not royalty, but we were allowed to go and we could eat with the king seven days straight. I'll skip over verse 6. Uh, I'll talk about that in just a minute. We'll get down to verse 7. It says that drinks were served in golden vessels. I've never drank from a golden cup, but I imagine it's probably pretty cool. Uh, vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished. Verse 8, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. This is a big deal because typically in ancient history, whether it's Roman history or what have you, whenever you attended a feast, the orders of drinking were dictated to you. If the king drank, you drank. If it served, you drink or you go home. It is interesting that in this context, everybody that was there was allowed to choose for themselves. There wasn't any type of command um, that normal custom of drinking was thrown out the window. You see there in um, the latter part of verse 8, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Now, question raised is, why? Why would a king want to change a, a rule that has applied to, to cultures of different kinds? Well, one of the answers could be, well, you know, you, court popularity. That's the number one reason that would come to my mind. Well, I just want people to be happy. And so if you like to just get wasted, then you can get wasted. If you uh, are a teetotaler, um, you don't have to, or you don't want to drink, and it, then you don't have to. Everybody do as you please. Now, that mindset is something that we kind of need to put on the back burner anyway. Because doing as we please doesn't really work out a whole lot in the end. Okay? And I believe the Holy Spirit guiding the author of this book has that little gem in there for us to, to maybe teach us a lesson there. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. Now, what do we know about Vashti? Unfortunately, we don't know a whole lot. As a matter of fact, as you're going to see, she's not going to be in the picture much longer. She's going to uh, take matters into her own hands. She's going to do as she pleases. And um, she won't be around much longer, but what do we know about it? Well, it's interesting. There is a, there was a historian that lived around this time. And um, his 
recording of ancient history stands to this day, and uh, you can read copies of it and you know wherever you can look it up online or go to uh, you know libraries that may have newer copies or whatever. But his name is Herodotus. He was a historian. Okay, I don't know if that was his first or last name. It was just Herodotus. Okay. Herodotus was, an, was a, uh, a historian, and he records some things about a queen that lived during this time uh, that um, we think is Vashti. Now, I've already explained to you that Susa and Xerxes, there's different names, okay? The name that he records, some theologians believe, yeah, this was Vashti, but it was just a different name. Uh, and, let me exp- and let me just kind of, let me give me the name. The, the, the name is Amestris. A mistress. Well, what was Vashti then? Actually, you know, Vashti, when it's translated, is actually kind of a title. It, it kind of means, um, in southern terms, it means sweetheart. That's what Vashti means. So, in other words, that could have been a title, a working title that, that the king gave for her. But her birth name, a mistress. Now, listen to what Herodotus writes about this woman. He claims that she was a very powerful and a vindictive woman. Amestris had a, had a woven a long robe of many colors, which she presented to Xerxes as a gift. Xerxes wore it when he visited Artenta, and Artenta was his niece, okay? his brother's wife's daughter. And because she had pleased him, and you know what that means, Artenta, or excuse me, uh, Xerxes promised her that he would give her anything she wished because of what she did. She said, I want the robe. Xerxes says, no, that, my wife gave me that robe. And if this robe is hanging on the shoulders of another woman, my wife ain't going to like that at all. He said, I'll give you gold. Herodotus wrote that he offered her everything else under the sun that he could possibly get. She says, nope, I want the robe. So, guess what? She didn't change her mind and a mistress learned of the affair and discovered that the robe that she had given to Xerxes had been given to Artenta, Xerxes' niece. She confronted Xerxes at his birthday banquet and demanded Artenta's mother as a gift back to her. All right, now get this. The queen says, all right, you want to make this right, Xerxes? I want Artenta's mother brought to me. So it, so it happened. She took Artenta's mother and mutilated her, cutting off certain body parts right there in front of them and fed them to dogs. That was the same woman that this, this lady right here, you just don't play around with her. Now, why was she in a different place? Well, um, at, given her status, queens were not always excluded from banquets hosted by the king. In a normal or other circumstance, she probably would have been there. The only reason that she wasn't is because this banquet was prepared in such a way that there was different entertainment or activities for the women as for the men. And so she was excluded and she was playing the hostess to the ladies. 
I don't think it was a Tupperware party, but I don't think it was, you know, R-rated either. I, it was just, they were just doing what ladies do. And ladies, no offense, but I don't always care for y'all's conversation anyway. I, it's, you know, it, it's going to, you're going to talk about curtains anyway. So I'm just kidding. That was just a joke. That was just a joke. Y'all, y'all don't care for men's top because we'll eventually talk about hunting and fishing and stuff like that. So, and race cars or whatever. Now, you read this text and, and I give you some insight into it. And, and it seems like, well, well, what's there to learn? When we take our spiritual binoculars and kind of zoom in, we see something happening. Now, I have before me, or behind me right here, I've got a a diagram of verses 1 through 9. And we're going to see something developing here in verses 1 through 9 that I want you to pay close attention to. All right? The first thing that we see in verses 1 through 9 is the introduction of a power player. That's going to be at Xerxes. That's at the beginning, verses 1 through 3. You get down to the end of the text, we are introduced to another power player, Vashti. How do we know that she's a power player? Let me tell you, sometimes you can just read one verse and kind of know what you need to know. And that's one verse that we have right there. It's verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Asherius. That's all you need to know about this woman right now. But she is a power player. And that's going to be verse 9. Okay? Now, these power players, Xerxes and Vashti, also had what's called a power play. All right? If you look at uh, the power play for Xerxes, that's going to be listed in verses 4 through 5. What did he do? Well, in verses 4 through 5, or 4 and 5, we, we see this big feast lasting 180 days, and, and everybody's coming, armies and, and, and you know, people of his armies and, and other leaders, and they're all there. He's showing off. We see another power play corresponding to this one. In verses 7 and 8, what happens again? The strategy of the drinking. Now, again, the Scriptures don't explain a whole lot about why and how, but I can promise you this. Verses 7 and 8 in the whole description about, hey, listen, guys, we've got this great feast at the invite of the king. Rather than doing as I command you, You do as you wish. I can assure you that's a power play from a wise politician. Okay? Today, Democrat, Republican, Independent, Constitutionalist, whoever, whatever you do, Libertarian, I can promise you they do their own power plays by making people happy with the ideology of, you know, I want you to do what makes you happy. Or I'm going to do something for you that's going to make you happy. That's what he was a pleaser. Okay? He wanted to make sure that people were happy. But look at the power display. At the very center of the text, you have this power display, verse 6. What do you see? The glory of this kingdom. Big kingdom, white cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, 
purple to silver rods and marble pillars and couches. Verse 6 is the longest verse of the text that we read tonight. I mean, there's more content in this one verse than anything else. And, and it's describing this display of power and prestige and everything. So it leads us to this. Rule number one. Learning to trust God's unseen hand. Now, let me... These were not the friends of the Jews initially. Xerxes and Vashti, they they were not on our side, so to speak. But here's what I want you to know about this and about them. Number one, when you want to learn to trust God's unseen hand, don't be fooled by appearances. Okay? Don't be fooled by appearances. Why do I say why is that why is that something we need to really remember? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, sometimes outward strength is a sign of inward weakness. Why do you think this was a big deal to him? He didn't know it yet, but his weakness was going to be proven. He was about to go to battle and be whooped majorly. Okay. I, I'm, I like um, I like boxing and the re- and I like it from time to time. I'll catch it, but you remember the big headline uh, a few weeks ago that UFC stuff. I don't ever tune into it, but that fighter that there's two women fighting Holly Holmes and Ronda Rousey. Man, she was like undefeated. Ronda Rousey, she's going to clean that girl's clock. And Holly Holmes went up in there, and you know, yeah, she took care of her real quick. That's what happened to Xerxes. He's like, I'm going to go over to Greece and I'm going to kick rear end. And no, he didn't. But he sure did put on a display. And sometimes we got to remember, sometimes those who are not friendly to us, sometimes who we may perceive as our enemy, they may put on a big show, but on the inside, they've got some real problems. And it's not for us to glory in that either. It's for us to remember that that may be a ministry opportunity. I'm going to read to you a verse from the book of Proverbs. Um, Proverbs 13. You may want to write this down. Proverbs 13 in, in verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. A lot of times when you get these people like Xerxes, Vashti, who are just like, you know, see me, hear me, whatever. They have to do something to overcome the lack of hope and the lack of a fulfilled life that they have inside. They're trying to make up for something that is not there. And what is not there? A solid, biblically-based relationship with God. And we got to remember sometimes in trusting the Lord, okay, God, all I see, I don't see you, God, but I see this person in front of me or this circumstance and it's humongous. Yeah. That's all that it is. it's, it's, It's only a mirage. Number two, as followers of Christ, we must be more concerned with the heart. As followers of Christ, 
we must be more concerned with the heart. Don't care what Vashti or Xerxes were able to do. At the end of the day, what mattered was what was on the inside of the heart of Vashti and the heart of Xerxes. By the end of our study, you will see the heart of Xerxes. And in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see the heart of Vashti. And you're going to see that what's on the inside will make a difference in what you will do on the outside. If your heart is right, it will manifest itself in doing right things. Listen to verse six, uh, Matthew chapter six, verse twenty-one. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Proverbs says, "Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life." So, if your treasure is prestige. If your heart, or if your treasure is fame, if your treasure is comfort, if your treasure is laziness, if your treasure is whatever, I can assure you, your heart will follow it right where that treasure is. Remember, you ever watch the Pirates of the Caribbean movies? Remember the compass Jack Sparrow had? For those of you who never watched it, Jack Sparrow is this funny uh, it's a Disney series of movies and Jack Sparrow's this, this pirate and he's got this compass that to you and I it's broken because it doesn't point north. But for him it works because it always points to what he wants the most. And so as a pirate, if he's wanting rum, it'll point to where the rum is. Or if he's wanting a treasure, it'll point to where the treasure is. Or Our heart is like that. It's going to follow to what we want the most. So we've got to be careful about what we want. That's a proper response for us responding to those circumstances or people that are kind of like, well, that's all I can see right now is their trouble that they're making. But on the inside, they're empty. On the inside, they don't have possibly what I have. On the inside, I bet you there's a big struggle going on. They're wrestling with something and there's a de- they're, they're battling demons and, and trying to rely on their own strength. And the only thing they know how to do is lash out and attack me or try to make a power display of what they can do and who they are. But on the inside, they're completely empty, which leads me to the last thing that I believe uh, uh, we can see here is that we need to use these times as opportunities for us to be gracious and kind. We need to use these times as opportunities for us to be gracious and kind. In the book of Luke, chapter, 20, uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 35. Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. But I want revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. 
He can repay better than you can. Proverbs 24, verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. We, can, we don't even have the authority nor the right in the eyes of God to rejoice when our enemies fall. Because lest we forget that apart from the grace of God, we would be right there too. Did you know that apart from the grace of God, you haven't committed murder? You haven't robbed a bank? You haven't committed some atrocity. I mean, literally, think about it. It's, it's only apart from the grace of God. But yet in our lives, we will have the power players, you know, who are kind of overt like Xerxes or maybe kind of hiding in the shadows like Vashti. And they'll make their, their, their power plays. They'll do things like verses 7 and 8. You know, they'll, they'll do things to make us happier what we think will make us happy or what they think would make us happy. They want to be people pleasers. They will say things that we want to hear, right? Or they'll butter us up like this big party was supposed to do that lasted 180 days. And we see that big display. We see all their pomp and their circumstance. You see, at the center of this text in verse 6, what the power display was was not their possessions. It was their pride. That's really what was on display. Pride is that which you show when you have nothing else for people to see. Did you know that? When there's nothing on the inside, when you are completely empty, all you have is your pride. And you'll do everything that you can to try to guard it and, 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 and let that be shown and, let, and give people the, uh, you always have the one story that can top the next person or your circumstances, you know, if their person is sad or whatever, well, yours is even more sad. I mean, you have to outdo because that's just your nature because all you've ever known is work to make your name known. And the gospel is completely opposite. Jesus says and my own kind of version of things, you forget your name and you make my name great. At the end of the day, Xerxes, Vashti, and their party were deceived by the evil one. We'll be looking into that next week. They had no respect or desire to seek after God. Only a faithful servant and only by a faithful servant will they ever have a chance. And we're going to see Esther come into play here. And we're going to see what she's going to do in this circumstance with the king. Don't ever let appearances fool you. As a child of God, the Lord is with you. Let him use you. His hand may be unseen. But I can promise you that sometimes the, the Lord that people need to see is the Lord working in you. And thereby we can be not an unseen hand, but a visible servant. Okay. All right, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, 
I thank you, Lord, for um, for this study tonight, and as we've kind of used it to as a springboard to um, <clears throat> see how you work. Lord, we got to confess that that we can't be professionals at it. I, I've I've been at this a long time, and I have questions every single day. But I know that I have tried everything. And I know that only by trusting you have I ever come out on the right side. I still may not get all that I want. But you are faithful and you supply my every need. Lord, let us not be deceived by the appearances of things. But yet, Father, in those moments where we come under attack, let us remember we are still called to be witnesses and servants to be gracious and kind and to point people to the heart of matters, not the circumstances or symptoms. Lest we forget, God, that apart from your amazing grace, we would be right where that person would be. And may we display the love that, the love of God that you would desire from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org.